Case 41, Bodhidharma pacifies the mind. Bodhidharma sat facing a wall. The second ancestral master stood in the snow and cut off his arm saying, your disciple's mind is not at peace. Please teacher, pacify my mind. Bodhidharma said, bring out your mind and I'll pacify it for you. The second ancestor replied, when I search for my mind, it cannot be found. At that point, Bodhidharma said, I've already pacified it. Wu Men's comment. This gap-toothed old barbarian sailed thousands of miles, especially to come to China. This can be considered stirring waves when there is no wind. At last he accepted a single disciple, but even he was one whose six faculties are incomplete. Alas, Zi Sanlang was illiterate. Coming from the West, he directly points to this, an affair initiated by an entrustment. Disturbing and stirring up the Chan forest is after all, you. Okay. Thank you, Chris. So now we'll sit for five more minutes. Anyone thoughts? Gail looks like she wants to go first. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you get that idea? <laughs> because you turned around. <laughs> and picked up the book. Um, Does everyone have a book, by the way? then I don't have to share. Oh. That's nice. I can see yeah. everybody's face. Yeah. 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 Well, my first thought was this disciple was really suffering. <laughs> I don't know if he really cut off his arm, but Apparently, he was feeling quite tortured by just, his mind. <laughs> may I just put in, the way this is written, it's not clear whose arm he cut off. Oh. His own. Well, I just, I, this, is, this is a well-known story that this guy wants to study with Bodhidharma, so he waits outside his house for days. And finally, and Bodhi, you know, every day he knocks on the door and he's in the snow and he's freezing. And finally, uh, and every day Bodhidharma comes and tells him, you know, get lost. And then finally he cuts off his arm and that shows Bodhidharma that he's serious. Okay. So, so people would know that story. Okay. Well, and I would not think anyone would have the audacity to cut off Bodhidharma's arm. I, I just. <laughs> okay. Well, but what, what, what this koan again is bringing to me is the whole talk about um, the mind. Um, he's asking, he's actually asking Bodhidharma to solve this for him. This fact that his mind is torturing him, basically. And yet when Bodhidharma asks him to show him the mind, he can't find it. It's sort of like this um, conundrum that we're all dealing with here, um, thinking that our uh, thoughts and emotions are 
actual things that exist kind of um, outside of us. Um, you know, they, they, you know, as torture, our mind is a torture instrument. We can't stop it. And, um, and I love that when he's asked to look for it, uh, he can't find it. Um, you know, so that was, you know, kind of what was, um, was coming, was coming to me. And, um, yeah, it, it's sort of this idea in my own mind, even that, um, it's the outside things that are causing me suffering. It's what you said. It's, um, you know, this feeling of embarrassment I have must be really real. I mean, there really must be a reason to be embarrassed and, you know, uh, whatever it is. And yet it's my belief. It's my belief in what the mind is doing that's causing the suffering instead of just seeing it as, um, you know, thoughts coming and going, emotions, you know, being triggered and coming and going. And um, I'm not identified with it, then I don't suffer so much. So um, that's why I really liked in Wu Men's comment, which I never understand. But I love the last uh, little uh, line in his little poetry, disturbing and stirring up the Chan forest is, after all, you. And that's what that made me think of uh, my own tendency to believe what's what i'm thinking is real so what do you see as the chan forest oh well everything is as is as it is and chan is another word for zen in a way but it's my believing and actually adding on to the thoughts and amplifying the story that is stirring it up. You know, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what the John Forest is, except um, I want to say it's kind of everything, really, just as it is. You know, but could it be? Inside. Could it be what's inside you, like your John Forest, my John Forest, the thoughts, the no, I, I, it, it, now that you mention it, I'm almost thinking that, you know, everything is as it is. And you know, this is what I'm just, it's bringing up to me. But I'm disturbing and stirring it up with thoughts about it and stories about it. I'm disturbing the forest, really. <laughs> it really just is as it is. Um, that was, I, actually, that's just what it's making me think. Um, um, but I, of course, have no idea. I never really do. Um, just kind of sharing what it made, what it brought up for me. I disturb my forest of, I'm the one. It's, it, I wrote down, my very last line is, it's an inside job. And, <laughs> um, and I think that's what Zen Chan teaches us it's an inside job how we either react or respond deter is determined by what we are holding or failing to hold in the moment and so if we're holding our own delusions and illusions and expectations and yearnings and so on without just taking life as it is difficult and and easy then 
we will always have a storm in our forest. That's what I got out. But you're seeing it as inside us. Well, I, I see we're things, the forest. I see things actually, Chris, we, I mentioned this earlier when we spoke briefly. I, I look at things on a micro and macro level. So on one level, if I am not at ease, if my forest is not at ease, if my peace of mind, my pe- if I am not peaceful, that's, that's the micro. Then I ripple that reverberates through the greater, through the macro, which is the universe. And so my goal, some in, my goal in this practice, and I don't even know if this is um, Zen practice, what I'm about to say, but whether or not it is, my goal is to bring myself peace so as to bring the cosmos peace. Because what I put out, positive or negative, impacts all because we're all connected so that's where i go with it did i answer your question kim it's both it's not one it's not two (laughs) chris is thinking For me, what I see is um, the fact that um, ancestors try to seek answer outside, and um, the Bodhidharma just tell him to look back inside. You you had your answer inside by asking him, where's your mind? And then he has to look back inside himself to find the answer. <laughs> yeah, I liked... Um... I like Nancy. I, you know, I had to look up the word entrustment. And it's entrusting with someone some responsibility, you know. So mm-hmm. he goes to Bodhidharma, you know, saying, I'm really just totally confused, which we, which we do. That's why we go to a teacher and saying, solve this for me. Help me with this. And all good teachers end up pointing you right back to yourself, you know, in some way, shape or form. Um, yeah, I wrote. I wrote in my notes that the teacher is not a. A teacher is not a sedative. You know, you have to do the work to pacify your own mind, presuming that there is even a mind to pacify. Peg uh, kept talking about koans as being about um, connections, relationships as opposed to about teaching. And it was so neat, my daughter who teaches teachers at UT was telling me she's working with a bunch of like principals and stuff. And, and, and she's trying to convince them that it's really about relationships and not about teaching. So she gave me this long lecture about that today. And it was, it was the same deal and the same deal here that it's really this connection between these two people that's uh, that's the entrustment that he's giving over to the other one, the, the teaching. I, I tried to find my mind when I was sitting and I could see the thoughts inside of it, but it was like a dark cavern. So I put, where is my mind? I envisioned I was in my mind and it was a cavern 
and my thoughts were wandering about. I couldn't bring it out because then I'd have to be outside of it and that it wasn't possible. Hmm. Is it our minds that are frenzied or is it something or is it something inside our minds? The mind itself is fine. So the mind was, yeah, the mind was okay. It was the stuff inside that was wandering around and kind of lost and bouncing off the sides. And I keep it, there was a cave, um, a particular cave that I kind of grew up with. And so I, I can see Bodhidharma there facing the wall. Kim, what you just, go ahead, Gail. No, I was just going to say, it's, yeah, it's interesting that we think of the mind as a thing. And yet when you try to picture what that thing is, you get sort of a dark cave, <laughs> you know. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's interesting. It's interesting. That's that's why it, for me it's hard. You can't actually pin it down. You know what is it? Is it your thoughts? Is it your feelings that come up? Is it your label? I don't know what it is. It's it's pretty interesting. Well, now, Gail, you reminded me of something else. So Kim saying what he said reminded me of a talk I listened to by Deepak Chopra who said that not only can scientists not really delineate the elements of consciousness, they also can't determine where it resides. And it's similar with the mind. We can't really delineate the total details of that. But it's funny. It's like the great Supreme Court justice said about pornography. I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it. And so it's when we're in that zone, and I know each of you has been there at some point where we are totally present, you know it, but where that resides is hard to touch on. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a grimace from Kim. Well, I'm just <laughs> thinking, I don't remember if it's Buddhist or, or in Judaism that for years they believed that the mind was not in the head but in, in, the, in the body. Does anyone know that? Well, I, know, I don't know that, but I know that what we refer to as the heart, when we talk of the heart in, in at least the Christian version of the Old Testament, um, it was believed to be in the bowels. Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard that. I you know, know I got a gut feeling. Oh. <laughs> it makes sense now, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and I'm anyone else? Chris, Any do you want to say any more? I feel like I'm stumbling around in this, not knowing what <laughs> I'm doing. Um, when I read this and started in on you men's comment, I, I felt like I stumbled through that reading because it was not immediately clear to me that what he was saying was in any way related to the koan. Gap-toothed old barbarian well, is that the same person as the second ancestral master? That's, yeah, Bodhidharma is, it's all Bodhidharma. Two words for Bodhidharma, the second ancestor and um, there's Trouty. 
Well, and and the he had a red beard. Bodhidharma had a red beard, and and he's referred to in other koans as a barbarian. Well, I I think I would have needed a good fifteen minutes just looking at this text, and and thinking about it just to understand who's who and what's what. So. I, I'm I'm really stumbling. Well, I'm sure I'm sure reading Guo Gu will clear it up a little. Yeah. So and being... woman, I don't know if Allison and Chris know this, but woman is the one who put these koans together, and oh. then he writes the verse. And the verse, I think, um, if you're not confused by the koan itself, then you'll be confused by the verse. <laughs> so it's to take you out of your head. So, Chris, you're in a perfect place by being confused. <laughs> perfect. Well, so everyone keeps telling me. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and so woman's else? like saying, "You, well, you think you got it. So here, now you don't. <laughs> well, and Kim, I want to say well, something well, about that. Because then after I read uh, Gogu's comment, I'm like, oh, I got it. And then I think I'm in the wrong place. I need to stay confused. <laughs> well, yes. I had a question about Wu Men. So, what was the time frame of Wu Men's um, putting these wands together? Does anybody know? Um, was it six hundred? Yeah, just a second. I'll look. Oops. Uh, it's the introduction itself, he compiled uh, and edited 48 cases in 1228. Oh, 1220. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's why it's so helpful to have um, a contemporary um, uh, teacher like Guo Gu, you know, kind of put that, his, that everything in context. Um, that's always that's always helpful to me. You know, maybe back in twelve hundred something, everybody knew the stories, and you know they could kind of um, get a clue. <laughs> but yeah, Nelda, I wanted to come back to what you said. Maybe you were supposed to stay confused. Were you just being funny, or were you being? Oh, I'm serious. I feel like once I've got it, I've lost it. Am I, is that making sense? As soon as I think I know, I am so off the path. And it yeah. would be the same with knowing God, wouldn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And every single one of these koans, Chris, um, you find your conceptual mind trying to piece it together and Close. organize it and make it make sense. And um, I don't think that's what the koans... Uh, the koan's pointing to it's pointing to that which can't doesn't have words and can't be labeled and you know just as soon as you think like Nelda says as soon as I think I've got it um it's like you've settled on something and there's no openness anymore there's no room for experience anymore you know so are you saying that the the goal then is to never understand well, I, you got to examine whether there's a goal. Yeah, yeah. I, okay. I think for I, me, I understand that. Yeah. Whether the all right, let me say it then. The method is to never understand, to deliberately not try to understand. 
Um, I think that for me, the method is to um, kind of immerse myself into what it's evoking in me. What is it making me feel? Where does it send my, my curiosity to? Or, or my, huh, you know, to? And um, that's, that's, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of where, where I go with it. And I, I've heard, I don't know if it was Peg or someone said, but I find it helpful in a lot of these koans. In fact, I think we did it at Apamata once um, as a practice with Peg and some other teacher. And that, that is, we enacted them. We, we did that a lot on Yeah, Wednesday we played night. the parts. And when you play the parts, you kind of get a visceral sense of what, you know, what the koan's trying to teach. Yeah, we, we usually do that on Wednesday night. Oh, yeah. Especially cool. in, per, in person. So Agua Gu talked about the experiencer and the experience and how you have to get rid of the experiencer. And just so it's really like to be you're, you're eventually being the koan rather than looking at it from the outside. It's kind of like what we've been talking about in terms of the mind. The, where the koan would be the mind and it's inside you. Okay. So, Trouty, you know we're on 41. Yes, I, yeah, because I was there last time. But what page are you on? 336 yeah. now. Oh, I'm on 38 already. And <laughs> I, um, I think that Gail's next to read Gogu's comment. No, I think, I'm sorry, Trotty, you're next. I forget, okay. it starts with E, yes. All right, let's see. <clears throat> Guagu's comment, the quintessential teaching of Chan is anshin, peace of mind. Few could appreciate this teaching, even though every, everyone wants peace of mind, and indeed it is something that each and everyone already has, People's actions stir up more vexations. I've already written about the life and teaching of Bodhidharma in the essence of Chan. So I will not repeat it here. Suffice it to say that all lineages of Chan trace back to the culprit as the first ancestral master of the Chan uh, lineage. He was the one who stirred up waves when there was no wind. Already more than 100 years old when he arrived in China, Bodhidharma met many Chinese Buddhists who wouldn't give up their props. So this Indian monk sat facing a wall in meditation inside a cave beside Shalin Monastery. The present story presumably happened some nine years after Bodhidharma entered the cave. It took place when Shen Guang Huiqi, 487 to 593, the second ancestral master to be, drew him out of his meditation. Even now, this story circulates among the deaf and the mute. Legend has it that Hui Qi was once a ruthless general. He had won many battles, but the more he killed, the more remorseful he became. 
One day, he happened upon some Buddhist teachings and felt great contrition. As a result, he left his military life to become a monk and repent for all the lives he took. Troubled by his past and trying to relieve his guilt, he engaged in sutra chanting and repentance rituals, visiting teacher after teacher, but nothing worked. When he heard that a great master from India had come to China and was residing at the Shaolin Monastery, Hui Qi set out to meet him. Am I next? Okay. No, how about Chris? Chris, Chris went, he went second with oh, the Oh, right, poem. right, right. That's right. He read the, the stuff. <laughs> Arriving outside the cave, we key, he key, uh, patiently waited, begging Bodhidharma for the teachings, but to no avail. As it was wintertime in northern China, he key stood there covered in snow, half frozen. Bodhidharma did not stop his meditation. Hiki was willing to die at this point, and he remained there in the snow with great determination. Bodhidharma finally turned from the wall and got up. He went outside and asked Huki, what do you want? Huki replied, I came here to seek your teaching. Bodhidharma <laughs> repeated, I have nothing to give you. Go back to where you came from. Hiki went on. I came a long way, please. My mind is not at peace. I have tried everything to pacify it. Testing him, Bodhidharma repeated, I have nothing to give you. Hiki took <coughs> out a sword and cut off his own arm and placed it in front of Bodhidharma. Seeing Hiki's resolve, Bodhidharma said, bring me your mind and I will pacify it. At this point, Huiqi's mind was completely focused. Nothing else mattered but his earnest need to relieve his mind, which was not at peace. He took to heart the one teaching the Bodhidharma was offering him, give me your mind and I'll pacify it. With utmost sincerity, he searched for his mind but could not find it. When he expressed that and Bodhidharma said, already pacified then, Upon hearing those words, in his astonishment, Hiki completely shattered the burden of guilt and turmoil that he'd been carrying for years, and he was liberated. So what I never knew was that Hiki was, had been a, a warrior, and so cutting off his arm was not... Um, It was kind of within his, you know, things that he did to other people. What is this peace of mind? Did Bodhidharma uh, give? Kim, yes. I think it's oh. Nancy's turn. Sorry. I got excited. Okay. What is this peace of mind? Did Bodhisattva give Hoki anything? He merely pointed out the gesture within Hoki with which to help himself. The gesture has been passed on from Sakyamuni down to the present. It's nothing but this peace of mind. There's no gain, no loss, no waves, no win. On the vexations you experience, whether they're guilt or anguish, resentment or craving are without substance. 
they free themselves instant by instant, far from being stunted. This peace of mind is, on the contrary, quite dynamic. It is the function of the wisdom mind responding to situations without any need to fabricate itself or others. If you foot down your vexations, you too will be able to respond to the environment and others freely. Presumably, you are an adult. (laughs) You have perhaps already lived decades. It is time to personally realize this peace of mind. It is your birthright, your task as a human being. Chan practice requires the four prerequisites of great confidence, vow, resolve, and the ability to let go of everything. Only if you're willing to give up your life will you be able to die the greater death, and live the great life. Even though you are already free, awaking does not come easily because you are deeply entrenched in your vexations. All the great practitioners of the past gave everything they had. If you have the least bit of reservation, not giving 100%, this is called tosin, the looting mind. Trudy, did I pronounce that right? Tosin? Toshin? Uh, yeah, it would be Shin. Toshin, the looting. And I am, I'm not uh, really. Uh, I mean, I, I hear Chinese and Japanese in the department, but I know either of the languages. But that was helpful. Thank you. Okay, who's next? I think it's me. Okay. Dushin is the dishonest mindset that always takes shortcuts out of laziness and greed. It is the opposite of the straightforward mind. It is this mind of deception that robs you of your wisdom and compassion. All of your props and attachments are basically forms of deception. You deceive yourself and others. For example, you go through life putting up a facade where you face when you face certain people. When you face others, you put on another facade. This applies to Buddhist practitioners as well. Some, the more they practice, the more strangely they act. (laughs) Reading all the discourse records of past masters, they confuse genuine practice with mere rhetoric. The more they read, the more they think and act as if they were enlightened. The longer they do that, the more convinced they are of it. It is like a liar who forgets her lies and after a while takes them as truth. So it's important for practitioners to watch out for this mind of deception. Being honest and earnest will carry you a long way. Sorry. <clears throat> While I'm not advocating self-mutilation like Hu Ke, who cut off his arm to demonstrate his resolve, it is important to be dead honest with oneself. The four, prerequ- the four prerequisites of Chan practice that I'm encouraging you all to develop are mindsets that stem from honesty and earnestness. Deeply see the extent to which you are deluded by your vexations. Essentially, you have to take off your facade and find out what's wrong with your life. Examine it within. Don't rely on scriptures or words from others. Find out what's wrong, and these prerequisites will naturally develop. Having developed them, you will eventually put your mind at peace. This gap-toothed old barbarian sailed thousands of miles, especially to come to China. 
This can be considered stirring waves when there is no wind. At last he accepted a single disciple, but even he was one whose six faculties were incomplete. Don't you, you assume that the six faculties are the six senses? That's, yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's a good question because here we're talking about the mind and we don't often refer to the mind as one of the senses. Yes, we do. In Buddhism, it is. Oh, okay. It's, it's okay. the sixth one. It's the sixth it's one. The sixth one. Oh, okay. Thank you, Kim. Oh, here we, here we go. Howdy. Okay. <clears throat> Bodhidharma is the gap to old barbarian and Huiki as one of whose six faculties are incomplete are not derogatory statements. Woman is actually praising them. Bodhidharma endured dangerous travels to China to teach. Huike relinquished his life for the teaching. There are exemplars for Chan practitioners. Actually, Bodhidharma endured more than just a dangerous journey to China. When he arrived there, people tried to poison him five times, which is why he had gaps in his front teeth. Finally, the last time he was poisoned, he died. His legacy, however, continues. That legacy is this peace of mind. In fact, this Bodhidharma is none other than this peace of mind. Yet, isn't it true that you sabotage yourself by poisoning your own mind with delusion and deception? Out of which manifest greed, aversion, ignorance, arrogance, and suspicion. You even spread these poisons to other people. You have to stop doing that. All sentient beings are the sentient beings of your own mind and heart. Stop poisoning them. Mm -hmm. Kim? Woman likes, likens Bodhidharma's teaching to stirring waves where there is no wind because he pointed out the most precious treasure you have within you. All of his descendants also pointed out that whatever you find outside yourself is not the treasure of your own home. Most people do not believe this. Some are even afraid to own up to, their, to this responsibility of being who you truly are. How about you? Alas, Sri Sangland. I don't know how to pronounce Do you know how to pronounce that? That sounded good. Oh, okay, thank you. Sri <clears throat> Sangland was illiterate. Sui Sanglang refers to the famous Chan master, Su Shan Shibei. Sui was his last his name. Sanglang was his nickname. San means the third, as he was the third son in his lay family. Lan just means boy. His father was a fisherman, and all of his brothers, including Sanglang, make their living livelihood by fishing. Having received no formal education, that's all he did. 
One night, Sang Lang went fishing with his father, and in the silence of the sea, he looked up at the moon, then saw its reflection on the water. Suddenly, he realized the justice of all things. He left his home the following day, and trusting the care of his family to his own departed, and traveled to a local monastery to become a monk. Fortunately, he became a disciple of Fulgong Ling Sun, a third-generation disciple of the great Master Ma Sun, whom, met, uh, whom we met in several cases. However, after a year, Ling Sun passed away. Sang Lan then went on to Ling Sun's drama heir, Sui Fan Yi Kun, featured in cases 13 and 21. Pardon me. Mm -hmm. Although Sang Lang was basically illiterate, he had great resolve and karmic disposition, which means affinity with Bodhidharma. I'm sorry, Buddha Dharma. He couldn't read scripture and was a man of few words, but he engaged in hard, painful practices, which in Chinese is Totuo, a transliteration of the Sanskrit word Duntanga. Usually people translate totul or dungtanga as asceticism, but this word has too much Western Christian baggage and doesn't really carry the same connotations as the original Chinese or Sanskrit. For one thing, Buddhists engage in totul not to deny the body or to negate it out of the Cartesian mind-body, body-mind duality. They engage in to be free from self-grasping. And the most potent kind of grasping is an identity of the body with the self. Sang Long never lay down when he sat and would often forego eating. Sang Long later became a Chan master with the Dharma name Shibei. However, prior to his awakening, due to his practice and discipline, other monks in the monastery called him Totu. To to obey. To to obey. Wait, I don't I don't understand what it means by Sangha never lay down when he sat. Sad means that we sat, right? How can we lay down? Ah, that's a good point. Sanglong never lay down when he sat. I don't know, Nancy. Does anyone have an idea? Sounds like it means he never lies down to sleep. He just sat. He just sat. Would sleep sitting up is how it reads to me. Maybe sad would be um, not like just when he was alive. I, I agree with Chris that mm -hmm. it's not the actual sitting, but... There was also this thing that where there's three ways of meditating, um, walking or standing, sitting and, and um, laying down. But in which tradition? Well, in, in, in Buddhism, but you mean what, what tradition of Buddhism? Well, 
maybe I think Buddha said that, or but maybe not. Well, I, I would not be able to recall it um, because I really don't know. But <clears throat> so he, it means that he do only one form of meditation, so not yeah. lying, medit not lying meditation, just sitting meditation only. Yeah. Mm. Let's see if I can find anything on it. It's as though it was his um, attempt to disidentify with his body, though, um, by um, not giving into you know, a lot of the body's uh, desires and wants. Um, kind of kind of interesting uh, how they were comparing it with the Christian practices is not being quite the same, though. Um, yeah. Well, a number of sites talk about four postures, sitting, standing, walking, and laying down. Who says that? Well, there's a number of websites, but I learned Korean Zen meditation. The four classic postures are laying down, sitting, standing, and walking. Each has its unique challenges and each has its unique gifts. So here it says Korean Zen. So the emphasis on this paragraph is that Buddhists engage, and I'm, I'm bunching two sentences together, in toll uh, tool to be free from self-grasping. So it seems to me that when he would forego eating, it's because he didn't want to grasp. And that when he maybe was tired of sitting, he wouldn't rest from that because he didn't want to grasp or have an attachment for that. I, I just find the construction of the sentence itself interesting in that it points out to the main focus of Toe Tool as being free from self-grasping. And it seems to give those two as an example of the way he exercised his attempt to be free from self-grasping. Right. And, and in a way, it, it's a certain way of um, attempting to let's say attain uh, awakening or enlightenment. You know, it seems to be a practice that you think is going to get you there. Um, but it seems to me that when you focus on the body, even by not focusing on it, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's like you're trying, you know, to do something. <laughs> um, right. But I don't know, you know, let's read on because I've yes. kind of been yes. going, it, it, they have a little more story about him. Okay, so who's next after? I am. Okay, thank you. After many years of practicing with Xu Fang to no avail, he left and visited other teachers. However, soon after he left, when walking on the mountain trail, he accidentally smashed his toe and was bleeding profusely. If you have ever hurt your toe, you know how much this hurts. He was in pain but thought, the body is an illusion, but where the hell does this pain come from? Suddenly, as this thought vanished, she greatly awakened. Shibei turned around and went back to Zhufang's uh, monastery. Zhufang said, I thought you left. What are you doing here? Shibei replied, 
I know not to ever deceive people again. This means he had discarded his facade and had finally relinquished the mind of the deception or the looting mind. Zhufang pressed further testing him. Why don't you continue your journey to other places then? Bei replied, Bodhidharma never came to China. Hui never went to India. Zhufang was delighted and affirmed his experience. Years later, after helping Zhufang develop his monastery, Bei became a teacher in his own right. He had gathered some notoriety and already had many disciples. Practitioners gathered around him on Mount Zwansha, which became his uh, toponym. However, in order to formally teach, Shibei needed a transmission. He asked a monk to submit three sheets of paper to Zhufang. Many things could have been written on them, but they were all blank. Zhufang asked the messenger, what have you learned from Shibei? Nothing really. I have no idea what he is talking about most of the time. He, Shibei, just puts the papers into my hands and asks that I deliver them to you. Zhufang retorted, you idiot, you missed the chance to study with a great master. Jufang gave Shibei his seal of approval. In Wu Men's comment, Shibei represents the spirit of Chan. Don't depend on words, language, deception, and delusion. Engage in genuine practice. No matter how much knowledge you may have, if you cannot put down your facade, it will be impossible for you to realize awakening. In practice, the key is to be one whose six faculties are incomplete. Isn't it true that despite the fact that all day long you see, hear, taste, touch, and think, you are really enslaved by what you experience? In genuine practice, you must be deaf and mute to all the distractions and temptations from what you see and hear. We must become Zi Sanlong, or Zwansha Shibei, whose actions spoke louder than his words. Coming from the West, he directly points to this, an affair initiated by an entrustment. Disturbing and stirring up the Chan forest is, after all, you. Bodhidharma, unlike other missionaries, who brought all kinds of scriptures, came to China empty-handed. Why? Buddha Dharma was already there. He went to China only to take away everything that people relied on. That was always the true intention of Shakyamuni Buddha, to remove attachments. When he entrusted Mahakashyapa, the responsibility of this wordless teaching the Buddha caused a great fuss over nothing. Yet, in doing so, countless people have realized that they are really, sorry, they are already free. A whole tradition based on nothing. The Chan tradition was established. Chan has nothing to give to people. No toys, no props, no fancy paraphernalia. In the West, as in Asia, People long for that something missing in their lives. So they pay lots of money for empowerments, for Dharma paraphernalia. They seek after spiritual experiences to fill the void. I recently heard that a Zen practitioner asked for Dharma transmission as part of her divorce alimony. What use are all of these things? 
Is a certificate going to make you happy? Will it truly put you at peace? Nothing out there can do that. You need only to stop poisoning your mind. Chan is already in the West. Is there a need for transmitting it here? Why did my teacher come to the United States then? Why am I exhausting my energy teaching Chan? If you can become intimate with these words, you will know that it is because of you, after all. Aww. And I'm sorry I read that last paragraph. I got halfway through it and realized it wasn't my turn. Oh, it's right. all good. It's all good. We already skipped you uh, earlier by accident. So, you know, you're just. <laughs> yeah. I really do love um, the whole, um, the way it makes me feel that it isn't so much what I'm seeing, hearing, tasting, uh, experiencing that's the issue. It's my attachment to it or my belief about it. That's where the issue is, you know, um, for me. Um, otherwise, things just come and go. You know, they just, it's just like a movement of life, you know, coming and going. But as soon as I grab onto something um, and tell a story about it, you know, um, that's an issue. And I also think of all the ways I avoid things by um, trying to do something else, like, you know, eat an ice cream cone, get pissed off, or, you know. <laughs> and, you know, there's, so um, I appreciate the talk about grasping and pushing away, which uh, Buddhism is always pointing to. Uh, all, the, all those things are doing is basically taking you out of what's actually here and now. You know, um, even if it's something I don't want to feel. Um, what the heck, go ahead and feel it. It's going to go away. It comes, it goes, you know. I hope that when I find my true self, I'll recognize me. You think the true self and the mind are the same thing? No. No, I mean, just viscerally, the, I, I, I didn't have an answer, but from my gut came up the word no. <laughs> That's no. Yeah, I think, I think that we often identify with the contents of our mind, and that's what we think we are, you know. Um, I'm everything that I think and believe and all the experiences that I've had, and that's what I am, that's who I am, the roles I play, all that. Um, yeah. Do you, Do you think, think that... Like, you know, this nurture-nature thing, you know... Do you think the mind is more nurture and the true self is more nature? In the what sense is the true the, self? Did you just ask that? What is the true self? Yes. Uh, well, it's something like the mind in the sense that it's something that we have a, a belief in or a sense, but I don't have any idea what it is. I think the true self, and I don't know, is beyond nature and nurture. I just, it, 
nature nurture our, our constructs of all our ancient twisted karma. Um, and so I, I think the true self is beyond those. How we evolve in nature and how we evolve as nurtured are all constructs. And everything else are constructs. Mm -hmm. Especially if we give it labels. Yes. So I'm wondering, and, and wouldn't it be delightful, or maybe not, if it's true, if that when each of these people in these koans and in life reach enlightenment, that that's the moment they know what I call their true selves. That that's that nanosecond of, oh, and they're home. I, I just wonder. Sounds like a lovely place to be. But like Pat said, I don't think we can stay there. It's impermanent too. <laughs> That's true. There, um, I think we are more fundamental than any experience. But that one of the teachers that I listen to says that um, what we what he would term the awakening experience is just a shift in identification not sometimes it comes with bells and whistles and sometimes it's super quiet but you no longer you're no longer you see that you've been identified as something that is actually not you not what you are but i don't know um glimpses glimpses i think you're right nancy sometimes you can get glimpses of um um Reality, but uh, this um, experience we're having as a human being, it's very sticky. So that's why we need each other and good teachers too, right? Yeah, enlightenment. <laughs> What is it? Uh, it's not. Whatever. Uh, Whatever it isn't a place. It isn't a place. It's <laughs> right. sort of like. It's not a question of are you enlightened? Is it's more a question of are you enlightened in this moment? <laughs> you know, mm. when I'm upset with my husband in this moment, I'm not enlightened. <laughs> when I'm able to let something go and just have it pass out of me and feel peaceful, oh, in that instant, I'm enlightened. You know. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> That's a, a very good example or examples. Yeah. So, Kim, are we, uh, are we, we're there, folks? Is there anything else? Wow, how many more of these do we have? A few Not more? enough. I have loved this. <laughs> yes. uh, so there's 48 all together. Oh, uh, we're, we're going to finish before long. Yeah. Seven more. Well, 
Mm. We'll have to find another one or something but else. <laughs> we can uh, we can leave the gateless gate. Yeah. This which is a different translation. Uh, yeah. As uh, of the same thing. Well, we'll have to decide. Do we want to stick with koans? I think there's a danger in that because, <laughs> because if we get all these interpretations from all these teachers, we may think we actually know what we're doing. Right. <laughs> and, we, and we want to be confused. That's the best place to be. <laughs> oh, all right, everyone. Thank you so much for your six senses for all of them. Have a good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank you, Thank you for leading, Nelda. Oh, my joy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night. Good Sorry for being late. No problem. Glad you could come.